In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It is so good to be here. Um, so we're now in Matthew chapter 1. You can find it, Matthew 1. Um, we are in the New Testament now, so we'll be going through Matthew. But tonight, my plan is to do just verse 1 of Matthew 1. So, dead ends. You've ever been on a journey and you get to a dead end? Or, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I'm trying to write a story for my children. And, um, yeah, Tim and I have talked about this. And um, I keep hitting dead end, dead end, dead end. It's so hard to put these things together. And we look at, um, some of us perhaps have experienced too, what happens when our children move out of our homes? It feels like a dead end. Like, wow, everything we live for for 18, 20, nowadays it's like 28 years. Um, everything we've lived for this long is what's left. And then, or when you retire, it's, that's another dead end. Um, this is because we were actually made as dynamic beings rather than as static beings. And what I mean by that is dynamic beings are beings that continually change. They continually grow. God is not, uh, he's immutable. He doesn't change. We are mutable and we're supposed to change. If we don't change, then we're dead. Hence a dead end. If we stop making progress on our journey in any way, no matter what level of life we're talking about, we die. If a child stops growing, it is developmentally dead. If I stop breathing, I am dead. If I stop eating, if um, we stop working on a project, the project dies. And if we stop growing in our faith, we will die. We are dynamic beings who were meant to be continually drawn further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis says in Narnia. Um, but I have a feeling that when we became Christians, many of us weren't sure what was next. It's like we arrived and we reached a plateau. And we became static. And we need a little bit of a call to something more, and I think a lot of Christendom in our country is experiencing this, so they start dabbling with Eastern mysticism, because we need to add a little something experience to our faith, um, or they start uh, spiritualizing psychology and bringing that into the faith, or just a lot of different things that, like, we're missing something, we got to do something more, um, because we reach this point that we're static, and God created us to share in his presence, which is infinite. Which means, I'm never going to be at the very center of his being. Never. I will continually move in, 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 deeper, deeper, closer, and will find that I've still only begun to scratch the threshold of his presence. And so there's never a time for the Christian to hit a dead end. Now, we may feel flat at times, and deflated and feel like, man, it just feels like everything's going downhill. But that's not to stop us from pressing forward. Now, in society, I think we're seeing a lot of dead ends because we see people who are just full on bored with life too. And so what we do is um, we start looking for new frontiers to conquer. And maybe it's for some people, it's women. We need to conquer women. We need to have people in our, or, or ladies, it's for men. And we need to have this um, romantic fulfillment. Or it's, um, I need to just go and pursue pleasurable nights and evenings 
day after day because we, when we get static, we get bored and we stop growing, we feel dead and we have to feel something. So we begin to look for extravagant lives. Um, you perhaps talk to people today. I mean, it's full in our culture who just are never content and they're always restless. That restlessness is because their life, they're not growing, they're static. The person who's dynamically growing in Christ is going to have a peace and a maturity and a contentment about them. And that's, that's an important thing for us to understand as we look at Matthew. Because in Matthew chapter 1, it's going to open with this tremendous word. And it's going to kill... Kill is probably not the best word to use. It's going to shatter and put a full stop to any dead end. As we open Matthew chapter 1, we have a 400-year gap between the last words of the Old Testament. The story had hit a dead end. There was this expectation that God would bring them back from Babylon. Isaiah and other prophets referred to it as a second exodus. He will bring us in and it will be glorious. The land will flourish like it once was in the promised land. Or even like Eden, some of them were talking about. Well, they come back and as we read through Chronicles, uh, Chronicles and, and Ezra and Nehemiah, um, there was vast disappointment with their return. The nations weren't streaming to Israel. There was no king on the throne. Empires were ruling over them. They rebuilt the temple when prophets came and pulled out their teeth and said, God's bringing famine because you won't give them your time building this temple. And all this stuff was going on. And it was slow going and it was painful and it was agony. And it just, the story just kind of hit this dead end. The people became static and it's just like, okay, this is all God has for us. They needed, what dead ends need are new beginnings. We reach dead ends because we start a journey, we start a story, but then we hit a point where it stops and it's incomplete. And this was the people of God. So Matthew 1 verse 1 introduces us to uh, how Christ opens our dead ends. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now it's going to go into a long list of names. This is Matthew's way of consolidating the whole story leading up to Christ. He's the climax. Well, we got to know the whole thing going up to the climax. So we're going to read through this. We're not necessarily going to cover it tonight, but we're going to read through it. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. Now, at this point, we get to names that we don't really see in the biblical story. And Ram, the father of Abinadab. And Abinadab, the father of Nishan. And Nishan, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now we're back in the story. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Chapter 2 of the story, Abraham has become a king. So, here's David's lineage of kings. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, who split the kingdom. 
and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, or Asa in Chronicles, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. Now you've heard all these names very recently. Hopefully you're jogging some of the stories in your mind. And Joram the father of Uzziah. Remember Uzziah became leprous at the end because he was proud. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, who ordered his ways before the Lord. And Jotham the father of Ahaz, who was uh, the most wicked of the kings. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, revival. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, also evil, but repents. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, uh, Amen in Chronicles. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So chapter two, the story starts glories with David, ends with David's lineage killed off the kingdom's dead, they're in exile. So now chapter 3, better pull this thing up or we're going to stay in this dead end. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel leads the rebuilding of the temple. But after this, there's a lot of names that are not in scripture. It's through their genealogical records that we know these names. Shealtel, uh, Zerubbabel is the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eluid, and Eluid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of, now the New Testament, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations, now he's going to summarize our three chapters for us. All the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the exile, the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to the Christ, 14 generations. Abraham, David, exile. So it's like this, like starting from the ground, Abraham, David, high point, exile, stories dead, Christ brings it back up. This is the story that we're painted all in just a few names. And this is what we'll get to explore. So tonight, I think I'm going to do just verse one. We will next week go through the entire list and uh, see what happens the third week. Okay, so um, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That opening sentence sums it all up. The two biggest names in Israel's history, the two biggest names before Christ are Abraham and David. If you master Abraham and David, you know the Old Testament pretty well because everything falls out of their stories. The son of Abraham, the son of David. Now, this phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, might refer to the names we just read. But the book of the genealogy probably actually refers to Matthew itself. That the entire gospel is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Um, the phrase here in the Greek, I'm going to bore you with a little bit of Greek, but if you're listening to me, you will understand what I'm saying. The phrase for book of genealogy is Biblos Genesios. Biblos? What does that sound like? Bible. Bible. And Bible, well, it sounds like, yeah, it does sound like Bible. 
So that's where our word Bible comes from. Uh, it means book in Greek. That's why you read the book of the genealogy. Biblos is book. And so, of course, we named the Bible the book is what we did. That's, this is the book of books. Biblos genesios. Genesios. Or in our maybe vernacular, genesios. I've heard it. You guys are whispering it. You're unconfident, but you're here. You're saying it. Genesis. Genesis. Literally translated, we are reading the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the Genesis. Now, what does Genesis mean? Well, it means the beginnings. And that's what a genealogy is. A genealogy traces um, a story from its source, from the beginning point. Now, this word, genesios, is the word that's used in Genesis itself. Um, now, Genesis, I know you know, was written in Hebrew. But about 150 years before Jesus was born, um, most of the Jews were speaking Greek, because that's what the whole world spoke. So they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And just about every single New Testament writer is quoting from the Greek translation. So that leads us to assume that the early church and Jesus himself were not reading the Hebrew scriptures. They were reading the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And that's significant because that means whenever we find a Greek word in the New Testament that's also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, then we know that there's an intentional reference point. So when Genesis uses the word geneseos, which is used right here, the book of the genealogy, then we know that Matthew has Genesis in mind. And Genesis uses this word ten significant times. Ten times. Um, what Bible commentators have done is they've realized this pattern in Genesis that there are phases in the story where the author will say, this is the generation of Adam. This is, or sorry, the genealogy is usually how we read it, right? This is the genealogy of Terah, the father of Abraham. This is the genealogy of Isaac, the father of Jacob. This is the genealogy of Jacob, the father of Joseph. There's 10 of these genealogies. And if you've read Genesis, you know, genealogies are sprinkled throughout. But each of them start with this genesios word to launch the next section. And what scholars have all come to a consensus on is that these genealogies are chapter divisions that the author has put in for us. And so each of these units are meant to be looked at as individual stories that tie together through the genealogies. Now, the Hebrew word is toledoth. You don't need to remember that at all. But toledoth, genesios, they're the same word Hebrew-Greek. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, it, it refers to um, this is what became of. So if you say the genealogy of Adam, what you're reading is this is what happened to Adam. This is what became of Adam. So what you then read is a list of names, right? But then you always have a story after the names. And so when you read the genealogy of Adam, okay, you're going to see his offspring, but then you're going to see this story. What happened to Adam? What became of Adam? It's called a story. Genesis is 10 stories with genealogies. And so what Matthew then does is he pulls in this word to open the gospel because how does Genesis begin? In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. But, now that's the title for the book, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that's the opening title. 
Then we move into verse 2. Now, so the author brings us into the scene. Now the earth was without form, shapeless, and it was void. It was empty. And darkness hovered over the surface of the deep. I'm sorry, not hovered. It was darkness was over the surface of the deep. Um, that, what Matthew is picking up here, by linking us to the whole story of Genesis, is that this is where the world is when we open Matthew chapter 1. The world is formless. It is void. And if you think it's bad now, we have 2,000 years of Christian influence in our world. Imagine it when pagans ruled the world, when demons literally led nations. That's a much more formless and empty world. Darkness. And so what happens? The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Here is this mess in the world. The Spirit of God comes upon it. And then God said, let there be light. And what happens next? Now, you didn't have in there, right? You didn't have in Genesis 1 a lengthy uh, conflict scene where the light said, well, I mean, darkness is pretty intimidating. I'm not sure if I want to move in on him. Um, there was no like darkness saying, no light's coming here, and they're wrestling. That's actually what pagan mythology did. All of the forces of creation fought with each other to see who would prevail. In Genesis, however, God speaks. First, his spirit moves over this mess. Then God speaks, and then everything at attention as if a king just said move, and everything said, yes, your highness, and it moves. This is how Genesis works. And so what we see is... The spirit moves, God's word comes forth, and creation happens. The spirit hovers, the spirit comes upon, the spirit moves, the word is spoken, creation happens. Do you see this pattern? Spirit, word, creation. If we jump ahead, what Matthew's doing is he's preparing us for the unbelievable that will happen next in his gospel. So if you look at... um, Chapter 1, we're going to get ahead a little bit because I want you to see this connection. Chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He's just preparing you. This is going to be big. This is how it took place. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, that means before they had marital relations, sex, the kids aren't here, so I just say it. Um, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, what happened here? She has conceived the word, Christ. By what means? The Spirit. Now, Luke is far more explicit, and he says literally, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. He'll come upon you. So Luke is referencing directly the creation story when he says that. Matthew alludes to it here. um, And we see that the Holy Spirit plays this role by coming upon what? Humanity. Mary is the, uh, she is the representative of humanity right now. And so she, uh, the humanity is corrupt. Humanity is broken. Humanity is formless. Humanity is empty. Humanity is barren of the fruits of God. Humanity is in darkness and enslaved to their sins. 
And the Spirit of God comes upon her and births the Word into her. The Spirit, the Word, are now creating something new in Mary. If it's the God who created everything, who's going to save everything, who's going to rescue everything, is what Matthew's showing us. This is tremendous. But this is a new creation. Because the world has come full stop to a dead end. But now, the creator is going to do his creative act again. Here's how Athanasius of Alexandria... Remember how I was going to tell you his story and never did? Hopefully down the road here in just a short while. Athanasius of Alexandria said this in his book on the Incarnation. Can I give you a real quick footnote? You should read on the Incarnation. Um, footnote number two. It's Advent. You should read the Incarnation. You can find it free online. Just Google on the Incarnation, Athanasius of Alexandria, to make sure you're really getting the right one. It's great stuff. Okay, back to this. Oh, footnote number three. When I tell you about the life of Athanasius, you will want to read it. Okay. Uh, on the Incarnation, Athanasius says this. This is actually how he opens it. It's in his first paragraph. He says, the renewal of creation. The renewal of creation. Why? The world has been decreated. Sin is corruption. Sin dismantles what God has made. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. Athanasius begins, because his argument is going to be very carefully to tie to that concept. That what God came to do with our salvation is he didn't just bring Jesus to the world to tweak us a little bit. Like, Joanna's a really great person. She just got off a little bit, an adjustment, like a chiropractor, right? A little chiropractic adjustment, and she's spiritually good. That's not at all how it works. That's how culture looks at Christianity, and sadly, it's how a lot of Christians look at their salvation. But actually, what it is, is we are so corrupt, we cannot redeem ourselves and a little bit of adjustment won't redeem us. We must be recreated. So what God does is the creator comes and recreates something new. So what he does is through his, just like in Genesis, through his spirit, the word comes into Mary. And then through her womb, the word makes himself a body. And this body, because the seed is the Holy Spirit, it's an uncorrupt body. And because this word is inside Mary, humanity has been healed. Because a new Mary has been brought into the new creation. She has been changed. Because Christ is in her, remaking her. And now, all of us, when we put our faith in Christ, he also enters into us and remakes us. So that we are not just fine-tuned, we are completely remade so that our nature can be united to Christ's nature. And that is salvation. We fell from what we were made from. We're not going to tweak ourselves back. We need the creator himself to recreate us. Um, we see that being hinted at in it, the Bible's beautiful, subtle way. Um, so that's the, that's the Biblios Geneseos. Geneseos. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, um, interestingly, if you go to Genesis and you look at some of these genealogies, they will always start with the person's genealogy, their name, but the story um, then will say 
that person begot this person. So let's say the, the genealogy of Adam in Genesis 5. Uh, it will then start with Adam begot Seth, and Seth begot Enoch, and Enoch begot, and it goes forth, right? It starts with the person whose genealogy it is. But in this one, we don't start with Christ. We go all the way back to Abraham before we get to Christ. It's a, it's a genealogy that reaches way further back, which is implying. Because if a, if a Jew is reading this and they're expecting to see the genealogy of Jesus, then we're going to see Jesus and his offspring. But rather what we get is the people before him. What this is implying is that Christ is the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Perez, and down the line. And this makes perfect sense when we remember that Christ told the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. Christ was not begotten in time. There wasn't a moment when Christ suddenly came. He wasn't, and now he is. Christ was there, parenting, leading, shepherding our patriarchs. And so we see from the beginning... This Christ goes all the way back. Um, of course, the genesios already is implied, like to creation itself. Um, okay, so then we see, uh, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. So what we'll do is we'll look at these two um, and we'll land the plane or the boat or whatever this thing is. We'll start with Abraham. He does it, David and Abraham, these Jews would often like, they like to do these mirroring things. So you do Abraham last because the next part starts with Abraham and then goes down to David. But um, we'll look at Abraham first. I want you guys to go to Genesis 12 real quick. Genesis 12. So Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Um, the first Genesis account, the first generation, is chapter 2, verse 4. It's the story of the heavens and the earth. What happens to them? Adam and Eve sin. The whole thing gets corrupt. Um, and then we move on to Abe, Adam, Abe, uh, Adam's genealogy. And then we got Noah's genealogy in chapter 6. And then uh, in chapter 10, the genealogies of Noah, Shem, and Ham. And then in chapter 11, verse 10, the genealogy of Shem. And then in 1127, the genealogy of Terah. Now, the story of Terah ends up with Abraham. It's all about Terah's son, Abraham. Just like the Bible's all about God's son, Christ. Um, Abraham's story picks up in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, who's later renamed Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What word did you hear a lot in that? Five times. Up to this moment, after Adam and Eve fall in Genesis 3, the word curse is introduced twice in Genesis 3, and it's repeated three more times up to this point. Five times we read of curses after the fall. When Abraham is called, these curses are erased. They're replaced by the word blessed. The first time we see the word blessed is not here. It's in Eden in Genesis 1. 
God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it. What we see is that the word bless, we need to hear this because in our culture, bless means I got a good life. Hashtag blessed. Um, Biblically speaking, to be blessed or to have a blessing is to have a share of the Edenic life that God made us for. That's where the creatures are blessed was in Eden. Now Abraham is called out of this formless, empty world, which has been decreated, has gone in reverse back to this dark state. And Abraham is called out of this. And he will now be the Edenic blessing to the world. Now how's this going to happen? Two important words. God promises them both here. They become much clearer as you read the story. He reiterates this promise, but they're, they're hinted at right now. He promises them land first. Go to a land that I will show you. And then second, I will make you a nation. The second way he's going to do this is through seed. Now, generations is usually as translated in our Bibles, but the Hebrew is literally seed. And this is important. Because what God is promising is a land for his people and that they will have a seed. Why is that an important word? Well, because land and seed do things when they're mixed. What happens when you put seed in land? You get fruit. You get a product, right? God is going to bring the blessing to the world when his seed enters into his land. But this is going to take some obedience and some cooperation. Now, seed got corrupted. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in Genesis 3, he said that your ability to reproduce is going to be painful. Raising children is going to be painful. And then he also said that there are going to be two seeds now. The seed of God, which he calls the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. And they're going to fight against each other. But one day, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent, and then it'll all be over. The seed of the woman, uh, Eve, will carry on the seed, and it will carry on. And now Abraham and Sarah, they're a, new, they're a new Adam and a new Eve, and they're carrying on this promised seed that will crush the serpent, and they're given a new land, a new Eden, and it's supposed to be fruitful and prosperous as God's seed. You are one of God's seeds if you do what God says. That's the difference. You're the seed of the serpent if you do what the devil says. Christ said this to the Pharisees. He called them a brood of serpents, one. That means offspring of the snake. So he's calling them the seed of the serpent. And also he told the Pharisees in John 8, you do what your father the devil tells you to do. If Abraham was with your father, you would do what Abraham did. But you're doing what the devil does. You know what seed you are by who you obey. So if God's people will obey him, they will be his seed and live in the land and produce an Edenic blessing and the world will come back to God. That's the plan. How does it go? Um, the seed is, well, it's, mar- it, it's got serpent in it and it's got seed of the woman in it and there's a lot of conflict and um, eventually they give way to the devil. They sin. And what does the land do? The land throws them out. Leviticus itself says the land itself will throw you out. Um, but we're getting ahead of ourselves because the promise then goes to Gen, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel, to your right, chapter 7. So if you find kings, go left. 
So you like you should be a quarter into your Bible, maybe a fifth into your Bible. Second Samuel seven. Okay, so we know as Abraham was called out of all of these pagan nations, promised land and seed. We fast forward to David, which you saw in the genealogy. We fast forward to David, and land and seed is now specified and clarified. It's heightened. Land will be called kingdom, and seed will be called dynasty. Chapter 7, verse, we'll start in 10. David wanted to build him a temple. God's like, no, Solomon will do it, which isn't born yet, but your son will do it. Um, But instead, David, I will build you a promise. I'll build you a house. And verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, like their seeds, right? He's going to plant them into a land so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Wait, aren't they in the land? Aren't they in the land? Yeah. Wait, where is God going to plant them? The land of Canaan was not all God had in mind for his people. There's a bigger land he's going to plant them in. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. By the way, Jesus calls this the kingdom of... Oh, okay, this is um, new Christian class. The kingdom of heaven in Matthew. It's called the kingdom of heaven. Um, <laughs> you knew that. Come on. The kingdom of heaven. Um, but okay. Uh, yeah, everyone's like, you had the answer, but no one's like courageous enough to say something. Um, and Violet Manchel took them no more as formerly. Verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, and that's what Mary prays. We, you guys just recited that. Um, Mary talks about God uh, giving them victory over, I don't remember the exact phrase right now, but the foes being subdued. Um, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your, literally, seed. I will raise up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So the land is going to become a kingdom. That's why God's talking about a future land. This will be a great kingdom, not just David's kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Whoa. David, your offspring, your seed, will bring the land to become a kingdom, and he will, your seed will sit on the throne of his kingdom forever, and he will be to me a son. So when Jesus said that he's the son of God, that makes already it makes a lot of sense. He's the son of David. He is the seed that was promised. And he's the one who's, who's bringing his people from, from land to kingdom. He's establishing something big. But David's descendants don't obey him. And so we see this big dead end. And then Christ comes and gives them a new beginning, a new genesis so that we can bring land and seed together finally. And what we see in Mary, and this is what what Matthew's trying to prepare us for, how does the virgin birth happen? What Matthew wants us to see is Mary is fulfilling these things because she's the land. Christ is the seed. And in her is coming blessing to the nations. You and I, the church, As God's kingdom, before it comes, um, we are his land. 
And he is casting seed upon us. His seed. Later, Matthew will talk about the parable of the sower and the seed. Depending on where our hearts are depends on how receptive we will be to his word. But when our hearts become fertile and open, like Mary was to God saying, I'm going to put Christ in you, she's like, yes. Um, We must open our hearts. We must have land that is ready to receive Christ's seed. And then guess what we will do? We will conceive Christ in our lives and we will shine his light and bring his blessing to all peoples. The genealogy of Matthew wants to set the table like this because he wants you, the reader, to understand that this isn't just a history lesson of names, that once Christ is born through Mary, we are going to have more offspring and because they're going to become the, the brothers and sisters of Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3.7 that by faith we become sons and daughters of Abraham. So we get added to this list. It's an open genealogy. It's still going. Are you and I bearing the fruits of the kingdom? God wants to his seed in our hearts. He wants, to, he wants us to conceive Christ within us. But we must keep our hearts fertile and open and uncluttered from weeds. And this is what Advent is for. It's a season to remember how to start the year. We want to birth Christ into our world. This is what we want. This is why we're here. And this is what a dynamic Christian life that goes past dead ends looks like. It looks like a continual forming of Christ in our lives until we come full term, if you will. We are all Mary. We are all called to receive Christ. So he will fulfill what he does if we allow our hearts and Christ like land and seed, to uh, intermingle and bear fruit. So, questions for us. What in our hearts need to go? Where do our hearts need to be turned over? Where are we resisting or hardening ourselves to what God is doing in our lives? We love being static because it's comfortable. But God wants us to keep growing. And you have... (laughs) there's we have lots of growth to do let's just say that Um, here's I want to close with this um, uh, Maximus the confessor I believe he was the 6th century he wrote this I was reading this um, two weeks ago and it just struck me if we keep the path of virtue undefiled through devout and true knowledge and do not deviate to either side, we will experience the advent of God. What he says is if we keep to the path of virtue, we don't deviate. In other words, if we keep walking the path Christ puts before us and we grow, virtue is the, it's, it's, it's the qualities of God coming out in our lives. If we keep to this path and don't deviate toward laziness or worldliness or sin, then the advent of God will come to us. What he's saying is, we will conceive Christ. His coming will come and be born within us. This is what we want to be after. So let us be those who see Christ brought to the nations because we were willing to say yes to him in all things. Amen? Amen.